You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you very much for being here this morning at Grace Community Church. So glad you were here. Uh, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace and Again, we're just delighted that you chose to uh, be with us for this service today. I, I do want to mention, for those of you who have been coming a while, if you're interested, it's not too late to get up and head to Grace Connection, which is going to start in just a few moments. Uh, it's a four-week class that will uh, let you know what uh, is required for membership here at Grace, but it's not just about membership, it's about information, being informed about what we believe, how we function. Elder rule is our church government structure, and that's new for a lot of people, especially in the South. Um, Mary Carroll mentioned that she was Catholic. We have a lot of people here who used to be Catholic. Uh, we have a lot of he people here who used to be Baptist, and we are in the middle uh, somewhere, uh, closer to Baptist than Catholic, but still... Uh, if you would like to know why it is we structure our leadership the way that we do, know all about the Constitution, then uh, Grace Connection is a class. So if you're not getting up in large numbers to leave right now, I assume that you're not going to. So you can still make it, though. There are three more weeks. You, you need to attend three of those classes. The next two weeks are especially important. Also, I want to ask a favor of you. When we first started two services, I was asking that some of you attend the second service because this is larger than the second service will be. And I'm not going to ask you to do that anymore. That's between you and the Lord. But I do want to ask if you would just stay long enough, some of you stay long enough in the second service to see the baptism. That will be after the music. And you can leave during the uh, greeting time, but... If, if some of you would do, if this is a body activity, it's a body blessing. And so if you could do that, that would be great, some of you. And then I don't ever do this from the pulpit, maybe once before, Kathleen McKinney. But tomorrow is a very special birthday for Jim Acock. 93 years. Can you believe that? <laughs> And I, I do not sense that he's any crazier than he's ever been. So I don't. Uh, <laughs> well, the Lord has blessed Jim with long life. And he has blessed thousands and thousands of people in the community with the Lord has blessed them with Jim's long life. So we're very grateful to just be a part of what the Lord has done through him through all these years. Well, this morning, I want us to think about division. Usually, we come to church and let's talk about unity, but let's think about division. It's, it's no secret or it's no, 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 not news, really, to report that our nation is divided. And I talk about this a little bit. Democrats, Republicans, socialists, capitalists, boomers, millennials, haves and have-nots, and those who are obsessed with self and those who are obsessed with causes, although... Many times, those who are obsessed with causes are, in fact, obsessed with self. They just use the cause to promote self. 
But the divide I want to think about this morning is a division in our land where many people are obsessed with life and others are obsessed with death. There are a lot of people talking about living a very long time, 130, 140 years. And in fact, people are beginning to say, you know what? We really don't have to die. We can work this out where machine and man can become one. If you think, oh, that's just silly. Believe me, a lot of very smart people are thinking about this and planning for this. At the same time, suicides, especially among the young, continue to increase. Now think about this. Overall, suicides increased in our land 24% between 1999 and 2014. 15 years. 24%. And in 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death for young Americans between the age of 15 and 24. Now, it wouldn't take a great deal of theological reflection to conclude, believing as we do, that there is more than meets the eye, that God exists and Satan exists. It's more direct than good and evil. It's more direct than this force and that force. It's God and Satan. And so it, we understand that Satan is behind both obsessions. The urge to live in one's present condition forever and the impulse to end this life now. How can it be that Satan is... Satan will do whatever he can to ruin your life. We know that Satan wanted to be like God with authority over all creation. He will never have that kind of authority. Although in God's grand design, which will make sense to us someday, he has given a great deal of influence in this age. A lot of latitude. And in fact, I think sometimes I sense that Satan is given freer reign in particular families or areas even. Sometimes when one church is going through a very difficult time with lots of illness and, and, and division and disunity, a lot of churches in the same area, it's kind of like there are pockets where he sets up camp. I, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but really if we believe what we do, it's not that much of a stretch. To think that God allows Satan that when we see that to be the case. So he is called the prince of the power of the air. And he's telling people just like he told Eve. God will know that you will be just like him if you eat from that tree. Death. He's obsessed with it. In John 10.10 10, you will recall Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus contrasting his desire for us and Satan's design and plan for us. So let's engage in a little bit of theological reflection about life and death of our own because we're going to read in our text today about Jesus dying so that we might live. 
The apostle John loved to reflect theologically in his gospel. Sometimes he would use the words of someone. Other times he would just give, give commentary. His penchant for musing is on full display in John 12. In today's text, which is verses 20 through 36a of John 12, he's going to use Jesus' words to think about the meaning of the cross. We'll see how Jesus' death, far from being about himself, brings life for all who will believe in him. Now, always understand the difference between any theological musing, Paul does a lot in his epistles, any theological musing written in scripture and our own is that the authors of scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may give us understanding and enlightenment, but he does not inspire us or give us revelation. Very important that you understand when you talk about, I had a new revelation. Well, in theological terms, revelation is reserved for those who wrote scripture. God revealed himself and they wrote perfectly. Any revelation that we get in our mind is not a revelation of the same sort. And so you need to be careful. It's we're faulty. We can, our reasoning can be bad. God will lead us. He will illuminate his word. He will enlighten us, help our understanding. But we don't have the same kind of inspiration that the writers of scripture had. We ask the Holy Spirit to lead us as we study. But again, our reflections are not inspired in the ways that the writings of scripture are. So two weeks from today, we're going to finish up John 12 as the Apostle John uses Isaiah's words as well as Jesus' words to talk about who gets saved and who doesn't and why and why not. Next week, we're going to take a one-week break from John to consider what God says about our giving. Lee was presenting the budget this morning and talking about that's part of life in the body. And you don't hear probably nearly as much about money as you should. Jesus talked about money all the time, but we don't talk about it all that much. But when we go to the scripture, we're going to treat it the same way we treat everything else. This is serious business. And our giving, our commitment to give, and even giving at times on impulse, but especially our planned, faithful giving to the Lord's work and to those who are in need. So that's when we're going to spend most of the time in the home groups thinking about giving, thinking about our budget, the specifics of our budget, in preparation for our church-wide meeting to approve the budget. So today's text is John 12, 20 through 36a. And as we read through the text, I think you'll see that this might have just as easily been three to four sermons instead of one. So what I'm going to do is just take the time to preach three or four sermons in this session. And we'll ask the second. And that way we're all here for baptism, right? The second. Folks, just join us. Just kidding. Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. Again, it's just, we don't always do this with these longer texts, but I feel like it's important today for us to just read the word. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, let me just say, let me just jump in because I'll say this in the sermon. That's a Semitic expression, an idiom. It's kind of like we talk about it's raining cats and dogs. He's saying if you hate your life, he doesn't mean that you know you walk around beating yourself or hating yourself. That's not the point. He's just saying in comparison, you need to pursue eternal life, love Jesus in eternal life more than your own life and the things that you want to do. So, again, a lot of the idioms of the day don't translate fully to us, but always know that there's probably more when, oh, wow, this is... And if you, if you take things very literally, that may be difficult for you, but I wanted to, to say that. Verse 26, this is an important verse in our text. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. The Messiah doesn't die. How can you say that this son of man or the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of God. Father, that's a long text. It's a long discussion, thought process, argument. It's back and forth between Jesus and his detractors, 
in Jesus' own mind, in the mind of John as the Holy Spirit led him to write these words. And we pray that you will give us understanding. We need your spirit to make this word, which makes no sense before we're saved. But as Mary Carroll said, it makes a lot of sense afterwards. May it come alive to us this morning. Open our hearts and fill them through your word. In Jesus' name. Thank you and be seated. So our portion of John opens this morning uh, with Greeks wanting to have an audience with Jesus. Would Jesus grant us an audience? Uh, Greeks in the New Testament doesn't mean people were necessarily from Greece. It just means Gentiles. It's one of the ways of identifying Gentiles. And since these Gentiles were in Jerusalem for the Passover, we know that they had converted, converted to Judaism. They were known as God-fearing Gentiles or righteous Gentiles. And it would be this group that would be the foundation for the rapid and significant spread of the gospel in the first century. Those who had come to the synagogue to worship the God of Israel because of the distinctions they saw in the followers of of, of, of Yahweh and the rest of the world. So why did they ask Philip to approach Jesus? Why do you think they went to Philip? Maybe because he had a Gentile name. He was a Jew, but he had a Greek name. So they said, hey, Philip, would you get us an audience? I mean, look, look at your name. It's just like our names. Maybe you could get us an audience. Interestingly, there is no indication that the Gentiles ever got to speak with Jesus. Although his impending death, burial, and resurrection would soon open the way for walls to be broken down. Walls that had previously separated God's covenant people from everyone else. And soon there would be no distinct categories, according to Colossians 3.11, between Greek and Jew, male and female, slave and, and, and free. But according to Colossians 3.11, the time would come to say, Christ is all and in all. So the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus represented really the whole world. And they stand in stark contrast to the Pharisees who just wanted him to die. Just wanted to shut him up. Just shut him down. These Greeks were saying, no, tell, tell us more. When Andrew and Philip asked Jesus to speak with the Gentiles, it's almost as though Jesus began to muse out loud. He just started thinking out loud. I do that a lot. Sometimes it gets me in trouble. Uh, sometimes not, but sometimes it does. But Jesus, of course, never got in trouble with God, but it did get him in trouble with the Pharisees. He said in so many words, well, not now. It's, it's not the time for me to see them because I've got a mission. I'm on mission, and it has to do with the Jewish people rejecting me. But soon will come the time when all men and women will have access to me. Jesus knew that his death would open the way to eternal life for all peoples. Now, the, 
if you read all four Gospels, you get a full picture of who Jesus was. John presents Jesus as someone who was resolute on his way to the cross. He doesn't tell everything that the synoptics tell us. But he said, I've come for a purpose and I'm going to fulfill that purpose. We have seen repeatedly in John that Jesus avoided arrest and execution because his hour had not yet come. But look at what he says now in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I imagine the disciples were thrilled when they heard him say that. It's like, okay, it's time. Now Jesus is going to reign on the throne. We're going to be with him. And then their joy immediately turned to confusion when he began to speak of his impending death. You've had that happen before, right? You hear something and you say, yes, and then the next sentence you're like, no. You know, it's all. Oh. How can Jesus' death result in his glory or in the Father's glory? Because it is the pinnacle of God's plan for redemption for sinful human beings. John 114 has told us that when the word became flesh, we began to see the glory of the Father. When Jesus Christ took upon human flesh, we started seeing his glory. But all through his ministry, Jesus, especially the latter part of his ministry, Jesus was pointing toward a cross. But even at the very beginning, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we knew that there was going to be a sacrifice. Well, we know in retrospect. Just now, though, we understand that God's glory will be greatest when the sin bearer is lifted up on a cross. This had been prophesied in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. The servant, remember last year when we were in the book of Isaiah? This is pointing to Jesus. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 being the one that we know the most. But Isaiah 53 actually begins in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, we don't see right there that he's talking about a cross. But Isaiah 53 is probably the most graphic description of the crucifixion that you find anywhere in Scripture, both what happens and also the purpose and the reason for it. So even in Isaiah, God's glory and the cross were tied together. Now, if Jesus were dictating a systematic theology at this point in his ministry, he would have continued to talk about the ways in which his sacrifice would be a propitiation for sin or the satisfaction in a holy God punishing sin. He had no alternative to, but to punish sin. And again, he would have explained all of that. But he didn't follow an ordinary pattern in his teaching. Instead, he talked about the identity his followers have with him and the cost for believing and following him. Now he's going to call for them, follow the light, believe the light while it is still light. But now he's saying, 
There's a cost. You've got to go with me to the cross. A, a natural response to Jesus might be, who do, who do you think you are that you require me to serve you and that if I am serving you, then God the Father will be glorified? I, I suppose the way you react to Jesus is determined by whether you believe he is God or not. If you believe, then the paradox that Jesus presented makes sense. Live for yourself, and in the end, you'll lose everything you wanted this life to be. You work so hard, so hard for life to go the way that you want it to go. And then you find as our neighbor I visited yesterday, he was in church last Sunday morning. And he's got a form of leukemia that works very rapidly. And he may only have days to live. We don't know. We don't know what life is going to be like. And all the things that we work for, if we're working for selfish purposes, will in the end crumble. They'll, they'll, they'll turn to dust and crumble just as we will turn to dust and go back. But there's more than just dying. There's the next life to consider. Commit your life to Jesus, on the other hand. And where he is, you will be with him forever in eternity. Jesus always did the will of his Father. And even now, it is our desire, if we follow him, to walk in the Father's will, which is given to us in Scripture by telling us to live cross-centered lives. Talk just a little bit at the beginning of next week's sermon about the will of God. How do you know the will of God for your life? Well, it's given to us in Scripture. In the end, believers who follow Christ are headed to a cross. That's where our identity is. Where we die to ourselves, we die to sin, but then also we are resurrected, raised to life, which is beautifully pictured in baptism. When we walk with Jesus, we walk in joy, even when life is miserable all around us. That doesn't mean we're never sorrowful, though. We do have great sorrow. I had great sorrow yesterday. Speaking with my, my neighbor in the hospital, who has changed so dramatically in one week, Jesus was surely sorrowful. Remember, and it's appropriate to think about that analogy, because remember just a few weeks ago in John 11, where Jesus just cried out in anger against sin about its effects on us and the death that it brings and now he says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour, but it's for this purpose that I have come. Since John doesn't report Jesus' agony in the cross, in fact, what, in the garden, I mean, what John gives us, we're going to find in John 17 is an amazing prayer that Jesus prayed. Not only on behalf of his disciples, but on behalf of you and me. You are mentioned in scripture, and it's there in John 17. Very directly, those who will believe on me after 
I have gone back to heaven. So John is reporting the anguish that was in Jesus' soul as he faced the full abandonment of his father, with whom he had enjoyed perfect fellowship and love from before time because the triune God never had a beginning. And since I've said that God never had a beginning, counselors are standing by to talk with you who are a little bit, ah, after that because that blows my mind to think about. God never had a beginning. But now think about it in this context. God and Jesus, just like this, always. Never a crossword. Never any kind of questions. Never any bad feelings between them. Always perfectly in fellowship. They were of one essence, even though they were two persons. And now Jesus is facing his father's abandonment. Because when he's on the cross, our sins are going to be on him. And he's going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father is going to turn his back. Crucifixion was awful. It was an awful way to die. That was not one one thousandth of what Jesus was anguished about. It was the loss of relationship, paying for our sin on the cross. I don't mean to diminish the agony and the suffering, the physical suffering, but the spiritual anguish was so much greater. And yet Jesus said, it was for this purpose that I came. And in so many words, he said, I will not refuse the Father's will for the cross, and I will not give up the ones that I came to save. And the Father's silence when Jesus said, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, if there's another way, his silence then and Jesus' resolute will to go through with the will of God is the reason that we can say today, I have eternal life. I belong to him. My sins have been forgiven. In full obedience to the Father's plan, Jesus asked for the name of the Father to be glorified. And the Father assured him that it had been glorified and would be glorified in Jesus' fulfillment of the Father's plan. So now think about that in relation to our identity with Christ. We talk, I talk about sometimes, if you are a believer, God looks at you and he sees Jesus and he is pleased. Some of you are suffering physically, emotionally, mentally, maybe, I don't know. But in your suffering, if you say, Father, be glorified and Jesus lives in you, he is glorified. Yeah, but it doesn't last. Well, he's glorified in that moment. And God's going to get his glory one way or the other. It's our privilege to participate in that glory by submitting to him and living in our hearts as much as we can 
in the ways that Jesus lived. And we can do that not because we're so strong or we're so good, but because he lives with us in our identity that started at our baptism, begins, or our identity is in Christ. The, the picture of which baptism beautifully illustrates. When the Father answered Jesus, the people did not understand what he said. And in fact, they were not certain that a voice had spoken. I mean, they concluded either it was the voice of an angel or a natural phenomenon uh, such as thunder. Jesus assured them that they had indeed heard a voice, and it was for their sake, not his. Jesus then told the people that his death would provide not only the means for eternal life, but that judgment would be executed at the cross, both for those who refused to believe and for the one who first tempted Eve. Presently, Satan does everything that he can to confuse us about life and death. But Jesus' crucifixion would bring about the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. When, when, when God the Father, Yahweh, told Eve, you will have a son and that son will have his heel bruised by the serpent. But that's okay, he will bruise the serpent's head. Since Jesus was speaking of judgment on those in the world who do not believe, verse 32 cannot mean that he will redeem every single person in the world. He's not going to save everyone, but to draw everyone to himself means that people from all nations will have the privilege of interacting with God with no barrier in between. Remember how this conversation got started? Remember how Jesus began his musings? What happened? Greeks wanted to see Jesus. There were many skeptics in the crowd, though. No doubt some of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, Pharisees, were there, and they sought to prove that Jesus was forfeiting his right to be the Messiah by talking about dying. We talked about this a little bit, I believe, in home group last week, how... There's uh, the first advent of, the, of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus, both prophesied in the Old Testament. And no one knew to distinguish the two until the cross, till after the cross. And so people are, are wondering what's going on. And, and of course, the Pharisees always take the position that will uh, bolster their opinions or thoughts about the Messiah and also prove Jesus to be a fraud, which, of course, they could never do. Uh, we've heard from the law that the Christ always remains. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The leaders were happy to remain strident in their unbelief. Even though Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days, no curiosity to examine the Old Testament in view of Jesus' claims. No willingness at all to consider that the signs, the greatest of which was raising Lazarus. No consideration that possibly those signs pointed to the Messiah. They only sought a conquering Messiah who would affirm their leadership, their positions of authority. 
Not one who challenged their integrity and certainly not one who was going to take their authority away. So they must have sneered when they asked, who is this son of man? What do you mean the son of man must be lifted up? But wait just a minute. That's not exactly what Jesus said. He did not say that the son of man must be lifted up. He said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. The people could have put the elements of his teaching together and claimed that Jesus, or claimed that Jesus said it that way, but that's not what he said this time. He did say it before, though. Do you remember when Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up? It was in John 3 when he was speaking with Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just a reminder, we cannot make ourselves good enough for God to say, come on into heaven. I accept you. You've done enough good works. We can never be good enough. If God does not descend to us, which he did when Jesus was born, lived a perfect life and died that sacrificial death, that is how we know God. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the same thing he's saying when he says, believe in the light while you have it. Believe in me. Again, I may be making too much of this, but could it be that Nicodemus had reported his conversation to the Jewish leaders and they were quoting Jesus' words to Nicodemus back to Jesus? They were throwing him in his face. Yeah, Nicodemus told us about that. You say the Son of Man must be lifted up as a serpent on the wilderness. In other words, they knew what he was saying. On a pole, on a cross, and it's like, we're going to put you on a cross all right. If indeed this is what was happening, I get the sense that Nicodemus had ruminated on Jesus' words. He just turned them over and over, and he's trying to convince the Pharisees. We know from John 7 that he was defending Jesus. We'll know later on that he's preparing Jesus' body, willing to defile himself during the Passover feast, preparing his body for death. I have even begun to think that Nicodemus not only understood that Jesus was going to die, but possibly he anticipated Jesus' resurrection from piecing Isaiah 53 together with other things that Jesus said, not reported in John, but reported in Matthew. As Jonah was in the belly of the well three days, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the implication, of course, it's just as, the, as Jonah came out of the fish, Jesus is going to come out of the grave. As was his practice, Jesus did not answer his critics' questions, which were in truth only accusations. Instead, he told them in John 12 that the light was in their midst, and if they wanted to avoid darkness overtaking them, then they had best believe. I think I messed you up, Dale, if you'll just 
hit it one more. They couldn't fully understand exactly what Jesus was calling them to believe because it had not been clearly revealed to them. And even the disciples didn't fully understand. Although Nicodemus possibly had worked it out. Even so, Jesus was calling these people to do as many had done and to believe in him. If they would believe, then soon enough, they would understand Jesus' sacrificial death and propitiation of the blood of Christ and the Father turning his face away and Jesus absorbing God's wrath in our stead and buried and raised on the third day and ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God waiting for the time that he will come both to gather his children and also to judge unbelievers. God is glorified just as much in judgment as he is in giving eternal life to his children. And our call as believers in this day before God's judgment falls on all the earth is to beg and to plead God to save sinners, not to point fingers and say, you'll get yours. That's not our business. That's why God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You're not able to do, you're not capable of doing it without doing great damage to your own soul. In just a few moments, we'll come to the Lord's table to observe the Lord's Supper, which points us to Jesus' sacrificial death and brings us together as one body in Christ as we commune together in the body and blood of Jesus. Even though I do not have five points of applications as I have for several weeks running, I do have a question. And I may only be talking to one person in the room. It may just be one person. I don't know who you are. But God knows who you are. It's a two-part question. And it's nearly the same question that was asked of our members, our new members last week. Do you acknowledge that you are a sinful person deserving God's punishment and incapable of making yourself acceptable to God. In other words, do you say, oh God, I am a sinner and I know I deserve judgment and punishment and I confess my sins before you. If you acknowledge that, do you then believe that Jesus died on the cross for you so that your sins will be forgiven, taken away when you cry out to him. You will have eternal life when you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me. Maybe it's just one person. Have you done that? If you have, this is not meant to make you doubt whether you have. That's not the point. But some of you have been depending on something other than Jesus for your relationship with God. And if that's the case, cry out to the Lord. He will save you. In just a moment, we're going to pray, and you can, you can do that. For those of you who are believers, would you be willing just in your heart to say, it's always good to do this. I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. In the home group this week, you'll have a chance to do that publicly. Don't get 
nervous about it. It's very simple just to say to the group, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'm going to ask elders and deacons in the worship team if they would come and come to the front row in preparation for the Lord's Supper. So this is your opportunity if you have not believed Jesus. If something has clicked this morning and it makes sense in ways that it never has made sense before. And you say, oh, I'm in trouble apart from Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and save me. I believe you died for me. If you have done that, you have passed from death to life. You have eternal life. And like our dear brother and neighbor who may be about to see Jesus, one day when it's your time, you will go directly into the presence of God. Father, all this is explained to us in this table. We know that we have eternal life because you promise it in your word. And as David Calvert has so often told us in his doctoral study, the word of God, quoting Isaiah 55, never returns to God without having accomplished it, its, its purposes. It always accomplishes the purposes for which it's intended. And so your word tells us that when we come to this table, that we remember the death, the giving of Jesus' body and the spilling of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us we participate in the body and blood of Christ. We know that we are one in Jesus. And so this day, as we come to the table, encourage our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we come to the table, hear these words from Luke 22, beginning with verse 14. And when the hour came, this is the hour, this is the hour Jesus is talking about all through his ministry. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And skipping down to verse 19, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The punishment that is required by a holy God for sin. So this morning, as we come to the table, we are going to come forward and receive 
from one of four stations in front of the different sections that we have. You'll come up the interior aisles, go back up the middle or the outer aisles. If you would, we're going to be serving uh, the servers and also the worship team first. They're going to be served first. And then ushers will direct you to come. But as you come, remember, this is eternal business. This is not ritual. This is not just something we do. This is a communion, a fellowship, a participation with one another in the body and blood of Christ. If you are a believer, if you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you may have done that within the last 10 minutes, come. If you don't know Jesus, it's fine. You can come forward and just Go like this, cross your arms maybe, or just, and we will pray for you as you consider the claims of Jesus. Uh, or you can stay at your seat. Now, for those of you who are unable to come forward because of physical issues, we will have someone in the back just raise your hand. and He'll be looking for you. He will come and serve you at your table or at your seat. But it will be the table at which you eat. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.